Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features a conversation between four seasoned authors who've written extensively about their personal lives. Carla Barnhill, Jennifer Grant, Margot Starbuck, and Karin Rivadonera discuss how to navigate writing about friends and family and then living with what you've published. To introduce the session, I called up Wesley Hill, an assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry. In addition to his academic writing, Wes has published two books for broader audiences, Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality, and Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. Wes spoke about his own work at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing and told me he also loved attending this panel and listening in on the conversation. Hello. Hey, Wes. It's Lisa. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. So, Wes, where did I catch you today? So, you caught me in my home office here Mm -hmm. in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, which is right outside Pittsburgh. Nice. Um, I teach at a little seminary that's five blocks down the road. And um, (laughs) yeah, so I'm here working from home today. Nice. What are you working on? Are you in grading mode? Are you writing? Grading mode, yes. Uh, We we finished our classes last week, so I've got a stack of papers to work through. But I'm also uh, kind of piddling with a couple of writing assignments that I'm working on for myself. (laughs) Good. Um, That's great. Well, we're going to, we're about to listen to a panel from the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing, um, The Memoirist Lament. Um, living with what you publish, and I don't know if what you're um, working on right now has a memoir component or not, but you have written um, a little bit of memoir yourself in addition to the kind of academic writing that you do. Um, And I wonder what you took away from this panel, what was kind of interesting to you about it? Well, yeah, I was interested in the question of how can memoir hurt the people that we write about? Mm. How can it do damage to relationships? And that's something that I've wrestled with in my own writing. So I, I recently wrote a, a sort of memoir about friendship. Mm-hmm. And I felt that in order for the book to be honest and, and worthwhile, I needed to talk about pain in friendship and, mm. and in particular the loss of a friendship. Um, but I knew that to do that might definitively close the door on any future possibility of reconciliation mm. with one friend. And so mm-hmm. I, I really wrestled with that. So I was I was kind of on the edge of my seat in this panel, uh, <laughs> wondering how they would, would answer those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, um, what in your experience, I mean, so you, you'd already published the, the book when you were mm. listening to this in this panel. Um, did you feel like, did you come to some sort of resolution about how your decision to move forward with that? Or mm. kind of what, what were the guidelines that you were using and kind of maybe continue to use when you think about where those lines are for you? Yeah. It's hard, and I, mm-hmm. I don't know that I have you know a definitive rule for yeah. myself, but I, I did I did finish a draft and um, debate over kind of what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I, I had obviously removed the person's name, and and I had worked really hard to tell how I was responding in the situation rather than to try to tell my friend's story. Sure, and that's something that this uh, this panel that we're going to listen to um, mm-hmm. uh, talks about, which I appreciated. Um, um, 
I actually wrote to a memoirist that I admire and, and asked her advice on um, on this, and, and she refused to give me a formula, which <laughs> was <laughs> not the most helpful. But yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the the basic rule of thumb for me is I I want to I want to write about painful subjects in a way that is dealing with my own my own journey to use an overused mm-hmm, word right. um my own my own processing of it rather mm-hmm. than to try to wrest the narrative from from my friends so to speak sure you know i um in preparation for this conversation mm-hmm. that i knew we were going to have mm-hmm. I, I went and read an essay by patricia hampel oh. who you know is a one of the great memoirists of, yeah. of uh, our time and and she has this lovely essay called other people's secrets mm. which is sort of the um, the big question for memoirists, um, you know, what do you do with other people's secrets? And, and she opens the essay by talking about uh, her relationship to her mother, who is epileptic. And um, in her first collection of poems, she, she had written a poem about her mother and sort of disguised some of the details, but she, but she included this, this reference to her epilepsy. And, and you know, her mother was extremely private about it and had not uh, really told anyone. Mm. And Patricia Hample said she was, you know, super nervous, but she, she gave her this draft and she said, you know, if you don't want me to publish this, I won't. You know, her mother was, was very upset about it, but eventually agreed that, that it could be published. And so that's, that's kind of the beginning of the essay. And then, and then she comes back at the end and, and she says, I I just thought this was quite beautiful. Maybe I'll read you a couple sentences here. Um, She says, I can see now that my mother was standing up for the truth of her experience, the literal fact of it how it jerked and twisted not only her body, but her life, how it truly seized her. My poem and I, we merely fingered the thing, casually displaying it for the idle passerby. What she knows and how she knows it must not be taken from her. And, you know, I, I was thinking about that passage in, in relation to my friends. And, you know, I think, I think in some ways they didn't want to run the risk that my chapter was just sort of fingering or, 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 you know, exposing a part of our community for passersby. They wanted to actually experience their own sense of the shape of the thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I, I just, I found that interesting to reflect on, especially in light of this panel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and part of the, the whole framework for the panel is thinking about um, the, that concern related to other people in your community and in your life, mm. like that being a source of potential lament. But I mean, what you're right. describing can also be just true internally of oneself, kind of feeling like, yeah. oh, I, I exposed too much or I said too much or not even just too much, but maybe I didn't capture the exactly. fullness of the thing that I exactly. wanted to capture. And now I'm kind of pinned down by this um, yes. this kind of thin representation of my yeah. experience. Gosh, that's so well said. Yeah, I've really wrestled with that. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, is that something that you've struggled with in any of your kind of autobiographical writing? <laughs> I think so. I mean, because you yeah. always have an idea in your head that at least I, I never feel like my prose quite measures up to, mm. to what my initial vision of it was. And, and you do ask, you know, have I have I adequately captured the complexity of this? And mm-hmm. okay, of course, the answer is always no to that. But <laughs> right. but have I have I done some kind of justice to the 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 many sidedness of it, so mm-hmm. to speak? Um, and and that was, you know, to return to my friendship book. That was part of why I felt I needed to include a story of failure in friendship because mm-hmm. I didn't want to present myself as some sort of um, exemplary friend or or <laughs> that all my friends are are necessarily perfect friends to mm-hmm. me and. You know, I think I think trying to do justice to some of the the dark sides of it was was helpful, even if ultimately I I feel like I didn't 
you know, do it full justice in the end. Wonderful thoughts. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Lisa. And uh, yeah, I hope I will see you uh, yeah. at the next festival, if not before. <laughs> Excellent. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. And now the memoirist lament, living with what you publish from the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. I'm Karen Rivadanera and I will be your moderator today. So I have the fun job of getting um, to ask all the questions and hopefully get them to reveal some embarrassing stories and humiliating behind the scenes secrets and all that kind of stuff. Maybe make them cry. I brought, brought tissues. Um, but anyway, the way this is going to go, I'll just kind of give you a little roadmap, um, is that we're going to start out, I'm going to have each of these guys introduce themselves. Um, they'll say their name, give a brief explanation of their memoir, and then maybe anything else that they want to share right off the bat. Then we're going to go in and talk a little bit about um, writing and relationships, because probably most of the regrets that we have about writing memoir have to do with the people we love. Um, at least that would be true for me. Um, then we're going to talk about a little bit about truth in fiction, how much is real, what do we change, a um, little bit about process, and then some general advice for aspiring writers. All through this, um, we would love it if you, maybe not right in the middle of someone saying something, but if you have a question or if something strikes you as odd or weird or whatever, go ahead and shoot up a hand and we'll see if we can, um, if we can get to you. Otherwise, we'll pause periodically to, to see if anybody has any questions. So, Carla, why don't we start with you? I'll pass the mic and let you introduce yourself. And I might give it back. Well, my friends, welcome. No, I, I do love a microphone. Uh, I'm Carla Barnhill, and I have been in Christian publishing for about 20 years in lots of different roles, primarily, primarily as an editor. And a lot of what I'll be saying today will be from an editorial perspective and kind of a book development perspective. Uh, but I did also write a book called The Myth of the Perfect Mother, that was a little bit of memoir. It was a lot of my own story mixed with some other research and that kind of thing. So that was that was my experience as sort of putting myself out there as a writer. So that's when I refer to my book, that's the one I'll be talking about. Okay, grab that mic, Margo. Hey, my name is Margo Starbuck and um, my first book was a memoir called The Girl in the Orange Dress, Searching for a Father Who Does Not Fail. Um, being relinquished for adoption, adopted into a bumpy family growing up, and then finding my birth parents as a young adult and sort of the spiritual journey <clears throat> that went with that. Um, but the reason I'm excited about this panel is because at the festival in 2006, I attended a memoir panel, and there were three um, humans, I hope they're not in the room, because... <laughs> Um, one was like an older, sensible man who'd written a memoir, and he said, you know, of course, every chapter, I ran this past my family. Like, why wouldn't you, right? That was his process. And the other was, on the other end was a young whippersnapper who, and you know what, he'd either gone from Baptist to Catholic or Catholic to Baptist, like, so for your family, either one of those is scandalous. <laughs> And, and he didn't, he like sprung it on them. So they read it for the first time after it had been published and right, it was really difficult. And the, you know, the second guy was somewhere in the middle, but like as a memoirist, like, ooh, that's a tale of woe. And, and of course it was so helpful for me to hear both of those stories before writing my memoir. <laughs> 
I love Margot's book, by the way. Um, uh, she has many books, but The Girl in the Orange Dress, I think you should all write it down right now. And if you want a wonderful memoir to read, uh, read that one. Um, my name is Jennifer Grant, and my first two books, um, similar to uh, what Carla said describing her book, um, The Myth of the Perfect Mother, um, my first two books are Love You More, The Divine Surprise of Adopting My Daughter. I really like long subtitles, apparently. Um, and my second book is called uh, Monumental, Messy Adventures in the Art of Raising a Family. I think that's what it is. Um, anyway, um, both of those books are memoir mixed in with other research and, and information. And, uh, and then the next two books that I wrote, one is called Disquiet Time, and that's an anthology of personal essays um, authors reflecting on um, the Bible. And actually, these three women are all contributors to that book. Um, oh, and that uh, subtitle is Rants and Reflections by the Skeptical, the Faithful, and a Few Scoundrels. I told you I like the long subs. Um, and then I wrote a, a book of a 365-day book for um, women called Wholehearted Living, five-minute reflections for modern moms. And that has a lot of personal, those are very tiny little bite-sized, but I kind of see that as a memoir told in essays in a way because they're all really personal stories um, in that book. So that's sort of my background in writing about uh, my own life story and, and the people I love. And um, I guess, you know, when Karin said we could say just something general about memoir, what I would say is that it's, it's tricky to find, and I'm sure all of you who are working in this world know this, it's tricky to find out how far to go and how much to keep back because an uninteresting memoir would be one that was predictable and didn't have anything that was upsetting or surprising or that um, revealed something. However, we're always thinking of those people we love and not wanting to hurt them, not wanting to uh, create drama with them, also not wanting to tell stories that are not ours. So that's difficult. And then add to that the fact that as writers, we often figure out what we think about something by writing about it. Then we're sort of in this really big mess of, of competing um, goals and thoughts and, and work. So we'll try to unpack a little bit of that today as we're talking about memoir. But that's sort of where we're going in a way. Yeah. And I think actually we'll start there because you brought up um, the idea of those three different memoirists having three different approaches um, of what you run past people. So I'd like to hear from you guys. Did you share proofs, early, early um, drafts of your work with people when you thought it was important? Did you not? How did you handle that? Who'd like you want me to, to start? go? start? Okay. Um, well, so my first two books, again, were about um, the the people that I love that I was writing about were my children primarily and, and my husband. And so obviously he was able to read drafts as I was writing these books. And there were stories that um, I thought were a little risky <laughs> and I asked permission to use and, um, and did use. But my it was harder with my children because they were younger and although I did read them um, and let them read passages that dealt with their own personal stories, they were really young. And now those same children are, are teenagers and, and young adults. And so one thing that I've sort of reflected on the last few years is that 
you know, asking an eight-year-old if it's okay to tell this embarrassing story is different because if the book's still in print when they're 18, they might have different feelings about that or different sort of experiences of that. Um, and I, I don't have a great answer for that um, other than I tried to be really respectful. There was a, a woman whose memoir I read a draft of. I think she was planning to self-publish a memoir. I don't know whether it ever was. I think Karin might have read this book. And I won't disclose who it is, so I'm not, I'm not telling a bad story about someone. But um, in her book, I took a, a read of it as a, as a consultant. And what I was disturbed by was that she sort of summed up each of her kids. So she would say, you know, Bob, he's the codependent one, you know, or um, Sally, who's always been such a winner, you know. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, don't do this. Don't put them in these categories. Even if, if for no other reason, for your relationship ultimately with them. Um, and I tried to tell her that. And so I think one thing that I tried to do in my books was to tell stories about the children without um, sort of putting them in categories and, and neatly summarizing them and sort of trying to make them as general as possible. And with stories about little kids, it's easy sometimes to just make it more general. You know, as parents of young children, many people have struggled with potty training or things like that. So those are stories that are relatable and can be interesting to um, other parents and aren't necessarily, you know, these ultimate vulnerable, you know, very vulnerable stories. So I think that's... Ooh, that, that business about um, my child, the codependent, um, <laughs> right, bad for that author's relationships, but I think that it also, you know, you want your reader to connect with you, and it makes it hard for me to connect with that author because I don't quite trust them, right? So you want them rooting for you as the author, as the protagonist, and connected to you, and that makes it hard to do that. Um, as I was writing memoir of this bumpy childhood, what I had in my mind is that when I finish this first draft, I want to hand it to my adoptive father, adoptive mother, and my birth mother, and I want them, when the book is published, to feel so great about it that they will give this book to their neighbors. And I feel like that was shooting pretty high um, <laughs> in retrospect, but um, my dad's response to draft one was, phew, it could have been worse. <laughs> and, and birth mom, too, phew could have been worse. And my adoptive mom, I think, was a little disappointed that, um, that she wasn't more of a hero. And I loved hearing that at the front end so that I could be kinder and gentler, right? Because the way that I painted her had a lot to do with what was happening in here. And I could be more generous and was able to be with that sort of that early feedback. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Carla, did you have something? Well, I, uh, the only, my kids were little when I wrote, too. And when I wrote about my children, and I think this is one of the, one of the real risks that you take is writing about children. Um, because you have to be really careful. I always tell writers if they want to write a memoir, you have to think of yourself as a character in your own story and kind of write a little bit distance that way. But when you start to make your children characters in your story, you really risk dehumanizing them or taking their individuality away. Now you've made them props in your story. And I think it's a really, really kind of delicate territory. So when I wrote about my kids, and I think you guys have done this too, I try to write about them in ways that are like, these are really common things that children do. So I'm trying to not like point out, here's my weird, weird kid. I feel like that's really unfair to this child. Like you said, they're going to be 18 one day, and I don't want something that I wrote for my benefit to come back and hurt them. Um, so for me, I, I wrote about them a little bit in my book. It was more about my experiences as a mother. So the focus for my book was much more on my own kind of 
things that I was dealing with. But I did have a whole chapter in the book about depression. And while I was working on the book, I was writing about depression and got to this point where I'm like, pretty sure I'm dealing with depression. Like I really didn't know until I was starting to write about it. And so then I was revealing this in the book and I wrote about how I realized that I am I have been dealing with depression at periods in my life since I was in junior high. And I knew that my parents would read that. And so that was something where I was like, my mother is a good German Lutheran girl from Minnesota and when she reads that, she's going to think it is all her fault. And I am going to have to preempt that or it's going to ruin her whole experience of this book. And so that was something where I took the time ahead of time to say, Mom, there's some in this book that I need to talk to you about. And it was actually, this is probably more than you need to know, but that was actually a really therapeutic moment for me in my own uh, kind of process of dealing with depression was to be able to tell my mother about it. And so it kind of served this dual purpose, but it was important for me that she not be blindsided by something because I knew how she would take it. So it goes against kind of the journalistic instincts that I think a lot of us have, because in journalism, you don't do that. You don't say, here, you don't pass the story back by your interview subject <laughs> to tell, have them tell you, this is what I want you to say about me. Great. Yeah. So it goes a little bit against that instinct, but I do think memoir, because it lives in such a different space in the consciousness and in the writing world, I do think you have to really think about what is the story I'm telling about this person? What's the worst thing that could happen? And what is the fallout of that going to be in my life and my relationship? Is it going to be something I can't, we can't recover from? Do I care if it's something we can't recover from? Like, you really have to ask those questions. And I think you also really have to ask yourself, is the purpose of this story to hurt that person? Is it, is it, am I writing this story about them because I want other people to see how bad they were to me? Or am I writing it because... <laughs> Revenge is not good. Revenge literature. is not good. But it's can real it can happen when you're trying to tell these stories and you find yourself kind of healing through the process of writing those stories. Um, you have to be really cautious about your your the motivation for writing about those things that might be sensitive to other people. And I love that you brought up the journalism connection, because right, for those of us with a journalist background, that's very true. That that's just something you don't do. But I think what's similar is that you know when people freak out about seeing a quote in print, right? Now I didn't say that I was misquoted. Usually they weren't misquoted. It's just the kind of shock of seeing your words, you know, and you thinking kind of what you said. And one of the things that I've had experience with a couple of times is even when you show someone a draft and they're like, oh that's okay and you have a great conversation, there's something about seeing it in a book mm -hmm. that they envision millions of people or tens of people <laughs> Depending, depending on what it is, 14 people are reading. No, no, but right in their head, it's like everyone is reading this. And something changes, I think. So have there been things that came out that even that somebody was okay, but finally they look at the book and all of a sudden you go, I can't believe this is in here. Anything? I'm just curious. I'm thinking of somebody who gave a thumbs up and it was um, uh, an infant who'd... Uh, been born to my roommate who's a single mom. He was fine like at age 18 with his name being his name. She was fine with it. And I just felt so protective of them that I changed his name like against their will. <laughs> um, just, yeah. Um, someone who I know and love well, um, I had shown this person a draft, fine, whatever. But it was seeing it in print that all of a sudden I got a call and it began with, how dare you? That's never a good. And it was, right, and it was like as this person was reading through the book. And it, and it was so innocuous, but it was really upsetting. And I actually went, I don't know if I, maybe I shared it with you, I went back to my editor, other people, and I'm like, please, is this bad? 
It, it didn't raise a red flag for anyone, but sometimes I think something just does happen, like people when they read their quote in the paper, there's something that happens, I think, that people are like, ugh. And so it can make it a little scary going forward. Yep. And just a quick tip, I'm uh, collaborating with a woman now who has lots of stories. Every chapter is a death, a murder, an abandonment. And she's asked the families, can you sign off to say it's OK that I share your story? They all sign off. And I say to her, you have to show them the exact words. They're not signing off on, yes, you can share my story, because right there's going to be those, those sentences that are difficult, painful. You really want to show them every single word. Yeah, yeah I agree. I don't have a, um, an example that fits that exactly, but um, should we go into regrets? OK. <laughs> should we just jump right into regrets? Um, well, and, and I would say that. Um, I don't have anything that is a true regret. There's not something that if I were to, well, I guess I do, I do have one, and I haven't shared this with, with these friends. But um, in my second book, I wrote about the challenges of being a person hoping to, I, I got married when I was quite young, still married. Um, but I had, um, I had a lot of insecurity around getting married in general, but also as a young 21-year-old person. Um, and in addition to the fact that I was very young, and knew all that I didn't know. I was raised in a home with a single mom, and so I didn't have a model of a marriage to sort of follow. So I had this, you know, kind of haunting feeling that somehow I wasn't equipped to uh, sort of create a, a healthy and functional marriage because I hadn't seen that modeled in my own um, family of origin. And um, and I really felt strongly um, that it was an important. Um, note to hit many times or a, an important point to make many times because over the years I've spoken to so many other people with that same experience who kind of grow up thinking, okay, am I a little less than? Am I, am I not able to create a healthy home because I didn't have that modeled for me in a, in a great way when I was growing up? And so I really wanted to extend um, sort of the gift of saying, no, you can't, you know, we, we get a fresh start. You can be deliberate, you can be intentional, you can you can create a healthy family and home and marriage and so on, even if where you came from was less than optimal. And so that was important to me, and I felt like that was a that one of the purposes for what I was writing. But um, one of the anecdotes I shared in this book, this was in my second book, Monumental, um, was about when I was engaged, a, a family friend of my then fiance's um, wrote him a letter expressing her concern that he get married to me because she knew details about my parents' broken marriage. And she felt like um, it was likely or inevitable or something that I would repeat those things, which was, of course, my, you know, sort of naming my worst nightmare. And so she wrote him this letter. It was an older um, friend of, of his family's, not a close friend, but someone he knew. And I wanted to include that anecdote just to say, you know, sort of like, the struggle is real. I really did have this sort of um, fear about this. And then it was you know, compounded with this, this thing that happened and some other anecdotes. So I included that. And I tried to change as much as possible about this person. Because it wasn't um, my attempt to sort of be passive aggressive and call her out. Um, my kids, my daughters who are teenagers, um, when someone on Twitter write something that's sort of vaguely negative about someone else. They call it subtweeting. So I wasn't trying to like subtweet this person after 20 years, you know. Um, I was really trying to use that as just another uh, way of telling the story. And I do regret that I didn't go to that person. That person still lives in the same area where I live. 
And I think it would have been healthier of me <laughs> and, and classier of me and also just, I don't know, more responsible had I gone to her and said, hey, you know what, I'm writing this book. I'm going to mention this thing. I will not say your profession or your name or your uh, relationship with um, my husband's family or anything like that. But I feel like it's an important sort of building block in telling this story um, because it's dramatic and it was a dramatic uh, event when I, you know, I read that letter. Um, and I didn't. And I, I, at the time, I was like, well, this is responsible. I'm changing so much about her. Nobody will ever know who it is. Um, but after reading the book, my, my mother-in-law said, I think I know who that was. Was this? And I thought, oh, no. And uh, I don't know how many other people figured that out. But I, I do feel regret about that. And um, if I could do it all again, I would go to that person and say, let's work this out. Let's resolve this now. I still want to use the story, please. I'll make it a man. I'll make it, you know, somebody in Paris or whatever. But, um, but I do regret that. So I, I encourage, I'm sure you're probably, you know, more mature than I am. I, I, I did that and I regretted that. Um, but that's probably my only regret. And, and in other experiences of, of sharing in books, I think, well, no, those stories were important because they were sort of high stakes, risky stories to tell. And that, I hope made the story stronger, but that's just, I would tweak that a little bit. Well, and I, th I think that is a really good point. I think this is one of those places where as a human being, you have to trust your gut. Where if you have this little sense of like, I wonder if they're gonna be upset, mm -hmm. or I wonder if people are gonna think X when they read this story, that's a, follow that rabbit trail, because it's gonna take you to the place where you need to go with it, whether it's asking somebody for permission or deciding to tell the story differently, or whatever, or even just rethinking your motives for telling it. Like, trust your gut on those things. Karen, we have somebody has a question. Oh, oh, I see. Why. That's why you handed me the thing. Okay, yes. Lisa here. At this point, the panel started to get some great questions from the audience. They're hard to hear on the recording, so I'm going to pop in and paraphrase. First up, how do you quiet your inner editor while in the early stages of a writing project? I have, I have some okay. thoughts on that, oh, if it's okay. No, go ahead. Um, I, I just heard a reading by a guy named Chris Hoke, who's here. And he works, he was a prison chaplain, and he's written about um, the prisoners that he works with. And there was one, person, one prisoner in particular that he built a really strong friendship with. And he wanted to be able to tell this guy's story a little bit. And I mean, it's a very powerful story in his book um, about this prisoner meeting his daughter for the first time and how Chris helped facilitate this meeting. And he ran it by the guy and talked to him about it. But one of the things that he talked about is he said, you know, I'm telling my part of this story. So I think that's another filter to use is what's my piece of this story that I want to tell? And he, you, you only get to tell your own story. You don't get to usurp other people's stories to make yours more interesting. So I think that's one of those ways that you can get rid of that inner editor and dive back into your inner writer and say, what part of this situation is my story to tell? And you know, what, is it, what are the pieces of it that are important to where I'm taking this memoir? What are the pieces of it that are going to help my reader follow me? And kind of weed through the extraneous stuff that feels like it could turn into revenge or it could turn into hurt or it could turn into misunderstanding. Because I, I have that same struggle. My inner, obviously my inner editor is very powerful <laughs> and much, much stronger than my inner writer, quite frankly. But, but being able to kind of think, you know, um, what part of this story is mine to tell can help. 
I love the challenge of speaking the truth in love because I'm such a believer that as hard as the story is, there are ways to tell it graciously. And so in my memoir, I didn't have to go into pages and pages and chapters and chapters of like how difficult it was. Honestly, in a sentence or two, uh, maybe about my father, I was able to communicate this was not optimal, and that's enough for the reader to get it. Um, so I feel like we can do it in gracious ways and, and also ways that aren't so. Mm -hmm. And I would just add to that that in your first draft, tell it all. You know, tell don't don't censor yourself as you're as you're, you know, first pouring out the story. Um, there's plenty of time for that, and and maybe you'll write 20 pages about something and decide that it's not kind or it's not loving for you to include it, and then you can turn it into what Margot was describing. You know, a brief summary or something that we we get it. Um, but it's important for you to do that work first and have, you know, really revisit that memory and, you know, remember what it looked like and smelled like and felt like and so on. Um, so, yeah. And I also think, too, it's great to have that good inner editor. But as a writer, it's also super important to have an outer editor, like another person. Um, so it's like, right, you get that first draft done, you get it all out. And to have somebody else to come through, because I think we've, I mean, we've done that certainly with professional editors, but even having friends and just other readers to kind of go, I don't know, this kind of seems too much or this, you know, and if we ask people to read with that in mind, I think it really helps. Yeah. Have you ever regretted revealing something about yourself? <laughs> well, again, this goes back to the depression and the regret wasn't so much that I said it, like I said, revealing that was actually really therapeutic for me to be able to own it. And it's something that I now talk about very freely, obviously with people I've never met, but, um, but it was something that came back to bite me a little bit. A review of my book on Amazon, somebody was like, I wonder if she's still in the throes of depression and really can't see her way through. Um, and I was like, you just totally missed the whole point of my book. Like, but, but it was something that was kind of used as a way to be dismissive of the other things I was saying. So I, re I regret that about it. Um, and I think that can happen sometimes too, where especially if you are talking about mental illness or places of struggle for you or places where you just don't have it figured out all the time, it, it, there's, it can be used sort of against you again for, for, as a way for people to be like, you know, she's not all there. So, you know, just ignore that. I had an unexpected thing happen, and it's not a regret. I, I don't regret having written this. But in my first two books, I did write about my kids um, as, as little ones. And... Um, and as Carla said, I tried to sort of talk about general things. And in one of the books, I was trying to make the point for other parents that when I was a young mom, I really sometimes made the mistake of thinking that who my kids were at age two and three and four indicated who they were going to be as adults. And um, so I think the name of that chapter is something like Kids Aren't Little Adults. So it was just, you know, I'm a slow learner, I think, as a parent. And so it took me a while to realize that you know, all two-year-olds are really selfish and grabby, and it doesn't mean that my, you know, child when he's 18 is going to be very selfish and grabby and whatever. Um, but some of the stories I told included um, two of my kids are 18 months apart, and um, the older one is a boy and the younger one is a girl, and um, they were very close, and they sort of grew up almost like twins. And they spent all their time together in a double stroller. People saw them as twins and so on. and and. Uh, they were both pretty verbal. <laughs> I don't know why. And um, uh, one thing that my son would say would be things like, if she, if his sister were to fall over, skin her knee or whatever, he <laughs> would say, and it was very cute because he had a bit of a speech impediment, and he would say something like, well, 
on the white side, it wasn't me. <laughs> and and um, at the time, I thought it was sort of half funny and half really horrifying, like, where's your compassion? Are you going to be like the, a sociopath? You know? And um, I made the mistake, you know, as a new mom of kind of thinking, oh my goodness, like, how can I remedy this? You know, um, how can I teach him compassion? Because obviously, he has no soul, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, actually, he was just a very cute little normal preschooler. But Anyway, time passes, and he um, is in high school, and uh, a couple of years ago, um, after dating a girl for about a year, he broke up with her, and her mother was very upset. She was also upset, but the mother was upset. <laughs> and in the days following this breakup, um, he, he told me a few days after this, and he said, you know, I'm getting these weird uh, text messages um, from this girl's mom. And I said, oh, that's strange that she's texting you, the mother. And he said, yeah, take a look. And so he gave me his phone. And on his phone were screenshots from my, my first two books of things I had said about him. And I did use his name. Um, things like, you know, when my son, and his name is Ian, when my son Ian was little, I thought he was a sociopath because he, my, his sister would fall over and he'd say, well, on the blind side, it's not me. I thought it was a cute story. Um, and she sort of made the point, see, you're still a heartless, you know, whatever. And there were many examples of that. And I was absolutely flabbergasted because that's something, as a person who writes a lot of personal stories and stories about my family, I never expected that. And when that book came out, it was in 2011 or 2012 or something like that. So he was, you know, I don't know. I guess he was about 12 or something when I was writing it. And I'm telling these stories about when he was four. And so it seemed really safe. You know, it seemed, and, and also for any of us who are parents, you know, we've all seen our kids be <laughs> completely heartless. And you think, oh my goodness. So it was kind of a general story, but specific to him. So I, I was really crushed because I never wanted the work that I was doing or the way I involved my family to be something that could be used sort of as a weapon against them. Happily, this particular child is like oozing with self-esteem. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty bulletproof. And he was just like, that's pretty like weird, right? Sociopath. <laughs> yeah, right, right exactly. Oh my goodness, no. Um, he's a very compassionate, lovely person. Um, but he, he was able to just say that the, it was strange and inappropriate. And um, I told him not to text her back and so on. But that was something that really threw me because I never, it never occurred to me that something that I wrote about my child whom I adore would later be used in that way against him. So, yeah. How do you handle telling hard or dark stories that you would never get permission to tell? I know Margo wants to talk about Glass Castle, so I'm not going to talk about Glass Castle. <laughs> but I will talk about Mary Carr's Lit. Anybody read Mary Carr? And she, she talks about a lot of dark things. But again, she really makes it, here's what happened to me and the other people, like she dated David Foster Wallace for a while, who was like spiraling, you know, in his own mental illness. But she barely touches on his part of that story. She just talks about what it was like for her to be romantically involved with somebody who's falling apart. And she, I just think she does a really good job of that. And because she's, because the, the darkness of her life affected her so much, she had plenty to tell of her own story. But I do think, I, I think you're right, Bronwyn, that's a very, that's very delicate territory to tread because you, you just can't tell someone else's story for them and you can't, you can't take it on to make your story better. It's just, that's a, that's a violation and it's another way of, 
you know, hurting that person. And But I think figuring out, like, and this is why sometimes memoirs take 10 years to write, because getting to those places where you're able to talk about this is how that, this is what it was like for me to love someone who was so hurting. That's your story to tell, that you get that completely. They might, they might not, but you don't have, but you might not have to tell theirs. You can say, "I loved someone who was so broken and abused, and here's what it was like." You don't have to say anything more about it, except to talk about your piece. In writing memoir, how much detail is okay to change? Thank you for bringing that up. We wanted to talk about that issue. Um, it's really important that memoirs are true, that the stories are true that we're telling. Um, there have been some recent examples. I. Was it the... James Frey Yeah, the big one, yeah. A Million Little Pieces. Million yeah. Little Pieces where he wrote a memoir and then it was later revealed that he had really invented it was fiction. So it wasn't something really happened and he changed the names or the identity of the person to protect them. It was stories that actually didn't happen. And so, um, so I feel really committed, as I'm sure we all do, to telling true stories because we, you know, if you want to write fiction, you can write fiction. And maybe in some cases, it's, a, it's something to think about um, if you, you can't tell someone else's story in a way that will preserve a relationship you want to preserve or whatever. You could consider you know, writing fiction. Um, but if you're telling a true story, it does need to be true. However, I think we all agree, you can change details about the person in order to protect their dignity or their identity. Um, in my, my book of short reflections that I described to you, I wrote about a woman in my church who is sort of notoriously the curmudgeon um, person. And I had a really good story that I wanted to share about her. And the point was to, um, to validate that she had so much to offer, but on the outside, she just was known as sort of the grumpy person in the church who was always, you know, snapping at the little kids, making noise, and so on. And I really wanted to tell this story, but we are members of the same church, and we see each other almost every Sunday, and I actually really care about her, and I didn't want to um, say anything that would ever... She, I knew she'd probably read the book. So this is a, a woman who um, sort of famously has a certain pet. Now I, now I, now I want to not disclose anymore, but I changed the animals that this person is very into, um, her name, and some details about her past. And then I wrote it, and I've gotten a lot of response, including from people at our church, of how much they liked that story. And nobody knew, and I, I sort of vaguely said it was a long time ago, and things like that. Now, the story was dead honest, but there was no reason for me to um, be disrespectful to this person. Um, that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was to talk about relationship. How do you handle situations in which you're asked to read your work in public, but people you write about will be in the audience? Right. I was just going to say, find a different excerpt. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Have a few in your back pocket, depending yeah. on their, who is going to be hearing. That's good. Um, there's a writer at the festival. I don't know if she's in this room, but I attended her reading, and she had shown me everything. And um, you know, when I, when I read it in my home, I'm like, oh boy, you know, I sound like a cool, fun person. And then I was in the room when it was, when it was read out loud, and it was about my, my clips in my hair. Like, and the reference was like... Oh, it's happened in the last few years. Yeah, like the reference was like, you know, she dresses like a toddler or something <laughs> and, and carries herself as a toddler. And like, yeah, like I felt kind of flesh and weird. Um, but 
she could see me, so right, no, no harm was intended. But there was stuff about our congregation, and um, and I and I don't think she read the hardest parts. You know, two blocks from our church about our congregation. She chose something else. Smart. Yeah, I would say, um, and that that would be for giving excerpts to you know bloggers or other things like that to be mindful of who might read it and come across it. And I think you know. Also, in my experience, you know, the people who are coming to the reading are mostly the people in, for me who are in the book anyway. Not very many people come to readings often, so just a little honesty. Do you find that humor takes the edge off when describing other people? I think it really depends on, on who the people are. I think, you know, also how self-aware they are. There, are. there are people who are really self-aware and love to, you know, poke fun at themselves and so on, and other people who are not there. And so if you are writing about them in a way that um, discloses a lot about how you see them, they, you might be holding up a mirror to someone who's never seen that angle of, of how they are. So again, I mean, this, this brings me to just a major point about memoir is it is messy and it does create problems. And even if you do everything right and you take the pages to everyone who's involved, there will be some, some messy relationships that you'll have to clean up or you'll have to um, navigate. And that's just how relationships are, right? I mean, all relationships have times where there are snags and there are um, things that we, we aren't a lot of fun, but we have to sort of clean up and work through. And so it is an opportunity to kind of, you know, revisit our relationships that have been important. And if we're writing about them, we're also maybe going to work them into a healthier place, you know, after having these little messy dust-ups that are inevitable if you're writing memoir. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, Anne Lamott says you need to be willing to kill your darlings. So your darlings is like that, like that fabulous story, that fabulous something. And um, in helping somebody else write her story, um, there was just the most wonderful, wonderful, absurd story of of a man in his casket and his grandchildren were invited like to walk by and put in like the, their favorite junk food that remind look he was covered in Cheetos and hot dogs and like I'm like oh my gosh that story has to be told and you know a really gentle editor said when they read this will they be proud to read this and right so you have to ask why you're doing it like because this is a fabulous story that I'm telling but um, but I thought like what a great filter will they be proud to read this and, and that's on us right to be creative and and um, thoughtful enough to tell a true story and that they can be proud of. Well, and just going back to that question of when should it, when is it fiction and when is it memoir, I think we all have to be honest as writers, too, that we don't remember everything accurately. And, you know, especially if you're telling things from your childhood or from a long time ago, you have to know that I'm probably conflating some stories or I'm probably, my memory on that might be a little shifty. And that's not to put doubt in yourself, but it is to be honest with yourself that if I... Or and with your with your audience to be able to say you know I've conflated some characters or it's possible I've told this story from my perspective but again if you're being honest about this is my perspective this is how I remember it might not be what happened but it is how I remember it that's honest too and then it's memoir yeah yeah and it's memoir it's an honest way of saying I might have some of the details wrong but I I remember it so clearly like this that this is the story I get to tell. Yeah, as long as you're again and saying Mary I Carr, may have gotten some things off here. In in her new book, um, The Art of Memoir, which I recommend to everyone here, 
um, she talks about the fact that she teaches a writing class and she stages um, an event for her students and has something really dramatic happen, you know, like she's teaching in a lecture hall and she has a colleague come in and they've planned it but the students don't know that and they get into a fight and they argue and um, it turns into an ugly situation. And later she has the students describe it and write, write about it, not knowing that it has been staged. And the students all see something different. Because we do, you know, the, some of the students say, you were really aggressive with him. And other people say, he was really aggressive with you. Or um, obviously it was his fault because of the way he stormed in. And others say, you know, he, he came in, but he obviously was just trying to work something through, you know. And, and that's how we look at our pasts as well. And we're always, um, always, always, always rewriting our pasts as well. And that's something to keep in mind when you're writing memoir. We, you know, as you live your life, you start sort of giving more attention and more um, power to certain stories because it fits the kind of narrative that you're constructing about who you are and what your life means. And, and that's appropriate in memoir, right? I mean, because we're, you're giving different weight and different um, importance to certain memories. Um, and so something that might have been minor that happened to you when you were six, reflecting on it when you're 36 or 46 or 56, you might say, that was a, that was a turning point. When really, perhaps, you know, that's just the way you're starting to tell your, the story of your life. So, yeah. Well, just in terms of, so the Glass Castle, telling a really hard story. If you don't know it, it's um, being raised by parents who were not functional. And um, she just does it so beautiful because part of it is she doesn't express any bitterness. And what that does is it allows the reader to sort of be outraged on her behalf because she's not, she's not bitter about it. So just the glass castle, just a beautiful way to tell a really hard story that allows the reader to experience. All right, we're going to come back to questions. And I know you've had your hand up for a minute, but I want to ask a question again because we only have a few more minutes. And I think um, there's a couple things maybe that would be helpful um, just as we're kind of wrapping this up is that I know um, that this happens to you guys all the time, right? People come up and say, I've got a great idea for a memoir, right? Probably a lot of you right now have great ideas for memoirs. What is the best general piece of advice or specific piece of advice that you would offer to someone who says, I've got this great idea? Um, well, I said this yesterday in my, you know, publishing 101, so I know a few of you, Rachel, were there and, and others, but um, I think it's the, uh, in my opinion, and maybe all of ours, uh, the, the best memoirs really come out of wrangling with a question or questions. So the questions that sort of keep you up in the middle of the night that you have been arguing with your college roommates, you know, for 20 years or with your family about. Um, the haunting questions, and they might be about, you know, who is God or God to you, or it could be, what does it mean to be family, or what it could be, you know, what's my purpose here, or it could be, you know, why is there injustice or a specific injustice in the world, and so on. And so I think, um, you know, f when I work with editorial clients and they say, I really want to write a memoir, what should it, you know, I've got these four different ideas. I always look for the one that is the most sort of high stakes and seems to be the one that um, the person has the most questions about. And memoirs don't really answer the, those questions necessarily. They might bring on more questions. But if you are, you know, so so taken with some question or questions about yourself or, or your spirituality or life or whatever that 
it's waking you up and haunting you and troubling you, and everything you see on the news or everything you read reminds you of it, that's probably a good place to start. Um, I want to say that your memoir has to serve the reader. We kind of get caught up, and I have this really interesting story, and people have listened to me tell it for years. It's a really interesting story. And yet, every book on every page, every chapter, needs to be serving the reader, meeting their needs. So yes, you have this great story, but either, you know, either write it all first and then let your inner editor go back and look at it again, but it needs to be serving your reader and giving them something um, connecting it to their experience. And then to just put a hitch in that, the number one advice that I give to people when they ask me about this is they'll say, I really, I have this storyteller, this thing happened to me, and I really think it would help other people to read this story. And I'm like, stop right there. Because if your main goal is to help other people, it's the number one way to make your memoir turn into a preachy, awful story <laughs> that is going to be like banging people over the head with this point you're just dying to make because you learned something and you really want them to learn it too. Nobody wants to read that. I mean, that's a different kind of book. That's, that's self-help. That's not a memoir, and that's not honest writing if you're trying to write your own story. So I always say, if people are like, I just really want to help people, I'm like, well, then you need to write a different kind of book. This isn't it. Mm -hmm. But so if, that, if that's what's motivating you is you're like, this happened to me, and I can really help people because I learned all this stuff, I'd say back it up and kind of try that again. Think through what is the real reason you feel compelled to tell this story. And it, it, that doesn't mean you should tell stories that aren't universal or that don't have connections with your readers or that aren't going to spark life in your readers. But going back to both Lit and The Glass Castle and lots of other, one of my favorite memoir writers is a guy from Wisconsin named Michael Perry. Anybody read any Michael Perry? Yeah, he's got a book called Truck, A Love Story. And, right, yeah. and uh, he writes about his life as a small-town paramedic in this little town in Wisconsin and kind of a farmer or whatever. But he just writes these stories because these are weird things that happen to him. And you never, you never feel like he's trying to teach you that, oh, life in a small town is better than life in a big city or everyone should be a paramedic, like nothing. He just tells these stories of a human experience and like Lit and like uh, Glass Castle. You leave the work to the reader to see, like, that helped me. Or, so I think if you're really trying to help the reader with something, you're going to do a disservice to yourself as a writer because you're not going to push yourself hard enough mm -hmm. to really be honest. And you're going to do a disservice to your reader because you're not going to let them have that magical experience that we all have as readers where you read something and you're like, oh, that, yes, that doesn't happen when somebody's like, you know what, here's the thing you need. That doesn't, you take that away from them. So, so I would say if your idea, if your goal is to help, back up. Start again. Really dig, go, go deeper. What is it about this story that needs to be told, and why do you need to tell it? I love that, and I think it's huge, because I actually think memoir should do the same thing for you as fiction does, right? It's just the beautiful writing, the beautiful story. I mean, they have the same arc, they have the same shape, it's just different, so, and that's great. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. Yes, go. Do you have any regrets about what you've published? No regrets. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I don't either. Other than that, you know, subtweet in that one book that I had. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're going to be a memoir writer, you sort of have to. It, it's like having a baby, where you're like, it's the most humiliating thing I'm ever going to do. So here it is. Here I am. Go. It's a little bit like that, where you're like, if I'm going to again, if I'm going to write a true story, it's going to be me in all my emotional nakedness, and I have to be ready to do that, or I'd need to do something different. I think last night we were talking, I love, it is humiliating. I mean, there's no way around that. It's humiliating. You're telling really, bare, most things that you don't ever tell people. It's wonderful. I mean, it's cool. But 
were you the one who said you have to figure out if you've got the stomach for this? Yeah. And the idea that most people not. don't, you might not have the stomach for it because it's, it's hard. Okay, um, next, yeah. When you're writing about a bad experience you had at a church or school, how do you handle relationships with those institutions? How do you avoid hurting or demonizing them? Nobody is raising the microphone to their lips. <laughs> no, I have so many thoughts about this. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I've edited a lot of books um, about the emerging church, and a lot of those books are people coming from evangelical churches where something went just amiss for them, and now they're in this other place. And and that is, that's a, a struggle people have. And I think this is one of those places where kind of power and privilege come into play, where when you're writing about one person versus another person, as the writer, you now have power that that other person doesn't have. You know, the the whole idea of the revenge thing, like, I got a pen and you don't, so here I go. Um, so you have power. But if you're the person who's been wounded, this the institution holds the power and the privilege in most situations. And so you get to speak out against that. And you you know, you know, can do what you feel you need to do to protect the place or the people involved in those institutions, especially, I think, when it's churches, um, because so many times our family history is connected to those faith traditions and those churches, and we realize, like, this isn't just about me and that institution. This is me and my heritage. And, you know, that can feel really vulnerable just as a person, too. But I think you you can be a little more bold about talking about those things in big ways because those places can take it. Yeah. They, they're in a position to speak for themselves in a bigger way than an individual is. Yeah, again, I think it's saying what part of this is mine to own. And saying, you know, this church, this is how they were structured. This is how they were. I am, my my husband had more of a fundamentalist background than I did as a college student, and he's now he's in a very different place spiritually. But he's like, I'm able to look at that experience almost as a cross cultural experience, where it's like, isn't it interesting that this faith tradition does this thing? What an unusual thing to do. <laughs> I wonder why they do that. Like, it's almost a sociological approach. And if you're if you're in a place of kind of health and healing where you feel like I'm able to distance myself a little bit from the things that happened there and look at it almost as a sociologist or an anthropologist, kind of saying, here's what happened. Those things are real and true. Now the emotional piece or the, the heaviness comes from how, that, how I dealt with that as a person. I don't know if that makes sense, but at least that I find that can be helpful to create a little emotional distance. We just wanted to underscore the word health. And if you're <laughs> not in that healthy place yet, probably not the time to write about it. Um, you write, you've, you've healed, you've, you've been on that journey, so you can write about it from a good place. Or you write about it, but put it away, yeah. you know, and come back to it. But how about one more question? And Lamott says that if they, people you write about, wanted you to be kind, they would have behaved better. Do you agree? Um, um, Nothing that's going to be useful. I just wanted to say that, like, if as I was describing my adoptive father, you can you can go online and find out who he is. But my birth father, you're never going to know who that was. And it was so satisfying to be able to give him a fake name, which was the name of his dog. <laughs> it was just it was very satisfying. But people behaving, go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are some stories that. Um, I'm waiting to tell, um, and <laughs> my friend Laura Lee is nodding. She had, a, yes, um, there are some stories that in order to tell them truly and um, and in a way that, that feels safe actually to me as a writer, I want to wait to tell until 
um, people have <laughs> passed on to their great reward um, <laughs> because there are people that I don't really want to engage with about these things. And I think there is that element of if I were to write um, about someone who didn't behave well in a very personal way and tell very true stories, there would be no way to do it without saying what the relationship was or more about that person. But I'm not interested in engaging with that person about, about these things. Um, and so I need to make the decision to say, okay, maybe this is something that I do write about now and I journal about and I think about and I research or whatever, and I set it aside and perhaps there'll come a day when, um, when I can tell some stories that I won't need to worry about that. So, and I hope that for any of us who did choose to wait to tell some stories till the person has died, um, it wouldn't be to vilify the person or to hurt them. But yes, there will probably be people who say, um, I don't agree with that telling of it, or, or you're oversensitive, or whatever. And that's where you just have to own it as a person who writes memoir and say, yep, I'm just telling my story. This is what it felt like to me. This is the way I remember it. Um, this is why it was important to me. And yes, there will be people who say, you know, who aren't happy about it. But you know, at this point, I think all of us have written enough personal essay and things online that there comes a point when, honestly, um, <laughs> you just you just don't mind anymore. I mean, you sort of don't read the comments, you know, and and yeah, never read the comments. All right, but we are out of time. Um, so thank you for coming. Many thanks to Carla Barnhill, Jennifer Grant, Margo Starbuck, and Karin Rivadonera. You can find links to their work in the description of this episode of Rewrite Radio. Thanks also to Wesley Hill. You can read more from him at spiritualfriendship.org or follow him on Twitter at Wesley Hill. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptine, Carolyn Meidskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw at calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.